a exciting passage. When I look back at my life growing up, I thank God that I had a wonderful privilege of growing up in a Christian home and also in a thriving youth group in our church. It was good to have many friends my own age that I could get on with and play with, but also that were also raised in Christian homes and attended church, played in the music group and um, led youth services like the youth did this morning. We got together and we passionately sang songs to God and we enjoyed good Bible studies. When we were 16 years old, we could go on beach mission and do evangelism. Outside, all was well spiritually. But in the 18 years since I was 16, much has changed in the lives of some of my friends. So much so that I think some of them would probably not profess to be Christians, or they may at least believe, but certainly not go to church and have anything to do with Christianity. How has that happened? Well, it's certainly not overnight. These things are often a, a slow fade. It's when our priorities switch. So it begins with thoughts that may not be so bad, like I don't feel like going to church today. It then leads on to thoughts of, well, I'd rather be out in the sun than come listen to Andy preach. <laughs> Do I really just don't want to go to church at all? And sports, church for me, Sundays for me now is about playing sport. It's about being with my friends and family. Or attitudes like, life is busy, there's so much to do, it's hard to find time to read the Bible and pray. Which leads into, I'd rather stay in bed, I'd rather watch TV, I'd rather do this and that than read my Bible and pray. So then the Bible never being picked up for weeks and months on end. Life is hard, it's busy, there are demands in work. And so church and God slips down the priority list of our lives. Money, our money is it's tight, but our shopping list is long. And so what do we give to church? We give just the little that remains. And then we get to a stage where there are big decisions to make and, and non-Christian relationships turn into marriage and then divorce. And without seeing it come, through the neglect of God's words and through an unhealthy influence from the world, it has left them cold, numb to sin, hardness to spiritual things. Now, if you are here this evening, as you are, you have probably not fallen away from your faith in the Lord Jesus. But I think that we can all identify to perhaps one or two of those thoughts, attitudes we've described above. I know I can from time to time. We may never think that these things will lead us to lose our faith, but I wonder are there attitudes that can slowly creep into our hearts and patterns of behavior that can develop, which means that we just are in danger of taking sin lightly. Our love, our commitment to the Lord is wavers our priorities and how we live our life and spend our time and use our money just a little apathetic my friends that i described above are in my prayers they are sad and extreme cases but but they're also like the lives of those that nehemiah leaves with at the end of his book 
heading in that kind of direction. The book of Nehemiah has been a book of success up to this point. We've seen the walls of Jerusalem be rebuilt after the temple was finished. And even greater than that, you've seen the people being rebuilt spiritually. God's people back in the land, united together, recommitting themselves to the Lord. Great celebrations we've seen in the last few chapters where they've come, they've made promises, they celebrate. They're reminded of who God is and all that he's done in rescuing their ancestors from Egypt. They're praising God that he would even want them back after such a long time in exile. It's a great time of celebration. They've heard the word of God. It's been read to them. They've mourned their sin. They've repented. They've changed their behavior. Even at the beginning of chapter 13, we've seen this. Outwardly, all seems well. We can say, well done, Nehemiah. You did it. And chapter 13, verse 4, would be a really good place to finish the book. So why does Nehemiah carry on? Why does he seem to jump a few years even and and tell us how it all seemed to begin to go wrong? The Israelites have both neglected God's word and have been badly influenced by the world, which meant that their whole priorities in spiritual life have gone the wrong way up. So why would Nehemiah write this? What is his purpose? What is God's purpose? Is he inspired Nehemiah to write it? Well, hopefully as we get into these verses in Nehemiah 13, we'll see that there's both a warning for us, but also a pointer to our continual need for Jesus. If you were here back in January, you remember we began our sermon series thinking about how Nehemiah teaches us of Jesus building his church, the people are being rebuilt, and how Jesus, his church is building up spiritually. The Lord adds to it numerically, and the church has grown throughout the world, throughout history. But Christ is also building his church spiritually, in Christ-likeness, so that we be like him. And we thought about the fact that if we as, as Christians are to live, to live for him and to speak for him, that we'll face opposition, like the Israelites did. We'll be growing in faith like the Israelites did. But we also notice that we still sin, just like the Israelites did. We will fail. We will get it wrong. We will mess up. I think tonight we see that no matter how great the people can be, no matter how great the church can be, it is never going to be perfect. It's never be perfect until the last day. So the warning of Nehemiah 13 is that these verses will show that when we live life in our own effort, (laughs) sin will just keep coming back. It'll keep coming back to bite us. Just for them, just as it done for their forefathers, it seems that those same old sins of Israel history is coming back to haunt them. And Nehemiah shows us that they need a Messiah. They need a saviour, like we do, who can ultimately redeem them, can ultimately build them up to be who they are meant to be. And hopefully we'll see that Nehemiah 13 shows us that despite our sin, there is forgiveness. 
that there is purity, that there's mercy. Chapter 13, um, although full of lots of rebuke, has got a nice bit of structure to it too. Nehemiah looked at three particular situations of sin. He tells us how he responds to it. He shows us how they repent. And then he prays. So we're going to work through this. And then we'll think about how our priorities as we live as Christians, how if we neglect God's word and are influenced by the world, how those things affect, first of all, how they affect our worship, and kind of specifically how they affect how we use our money. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading through verse 6, we kind of see here that, that Nehemiah has spent some time away from Jerusalem. So what he's writing about here is probably a good few years after all the rededication of the temple that we've read in the last few chapters. He's been back serving King Artaxerxes in Persia, and now he's returned, and he's found Jerusalem to not be a happy place. First thing he sees is there's been this complete abuse of the temple and a neglect of the worship. So let's have another read um, down verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked him permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned all about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. In verse 10. I also learned how the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Last time, Charlie ended um, chapter 12, telling us how the people had responded to the word of God positively. Worship was to recommence. People would bring in all their offerings and tithes, and the Levites would get all that they need so they could live and work in a temple and do what they needed to do. In chapter 10, the people had promised that they would assume the responsibility of bringing into the house of the Lord all the first fruits of their crops. In verse 37, they say, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of the God the first of our ground meal, our grain offerings, the fruits of all the trees, the new wine, and the olive oil. They promised to bring all this stuff in accordance with the law of God. But what does Nehemiah find when he gets back to Jerusalem? The storerooms was no longer a walk-in pantry for the Levites, but it become a, like a big yellow self-storage site for Tobiah. Tobiah, remember Tobiah? This non-Jewish pest to the Israelites. This was the guy who was a thorn in their side. 
as they rebuilt the walls, he was in continual opposition to them, trying to get in their way, trying to stop them, trying to kill them even. And somehow now in chapter 13, he's made his way, niggled his way into having a place in the temple itself. What has happened? What has gone wrong in Jerusalem? Well, we see, don't we, that he had this association with priests. Perhaps he'd done some kind of deal with the people that he can provide for their needs without them having to come and bring their grain offerings. It's quite nice to keep stuff for yourself if it's provided by someone else, and maybe that was what was going on. So there was no tithes coming in, there was no grapes, and there was no olive oil. So the storeroom was empty. So he could nicely walk in and use it for his storage. And if that wasn't bad enough, it seems that no one cared and no one did anything about it. The poor Levites, the poor musicians, they had to go to the field, dig up the potatoes themselves. There was no worship, there was no offerings. Their priorities had changed. So their pastors had to go to the allotment. People had neglected the word of God and had been influenced by the world. It seems that materialism, that desire for stuff had grabbed them. That hunger for better, newer possessions. The attitude that we don't really want to give of ourselves. And if we have to, we'll give a little bit just to appease our consciences, but it's never really sacrificial. That kind of thinking is, is powerful in our culture. People live for money. People live to buy stuff, to have stuff. And we can be influenced by that. If we live thinking that we count what we have at the left at the end of the month, and that's what we'll give, rather than set aside our first fruit to the beginning of the month, then perhaps our priorities are wrong. If we care more about what's on TV than attending home group, then maybe our priorities have shifted from wanting to build God's kingdom to building our own kingdoms. If we pull out of serving in the church in some way and take up opportunities somewhere else which we will prefer, then the body of Christ will suffer. There will be gaps appearing in ministries. When we are influenced by the world, we neglect God's word, these things can take over. And Nehemiah, his response is to do something about it. What does he do? He throws out to buy his kids furniture from the storeroom. He brings back and restores worship. He brings back all the tithes. They return to the storeroom. Sometimes when we are influenced by the world and we, we forget the goodness of God, we forget that it's him who gives us all that we need. We forget all that he's done for us and it just slips from our mind and we are more concerned with our comfort. Our hearts can easily be drawn away. And I'm sure it's been your experience that when we do hear God's word, when we are learning about who he is and what he's done for us, who we are in Christ, we are warmed and our desire is to want to be with him, is to want to give our money to serve him and his glory rather than 
filling our own pockets. I wonder this evening, what is your priority in worship? Particularly, what is your priority in how you use your money? I think as a church, we can be thankful, as we thought on Tuesday in our annual church meeting, God has blessed Morden Road Church and people have been giving sacrificially and we can give thanks for that. I'm sure you, like me, it doesn't take much for us to, to waver, to feel uncomfortable when it comes to matters of money and how we use it. Second area in which Israel have neglected God's word and have been influenced by the world is in how they use their time, and particularly the Sabbath day. Nehemiah mentions Sabbath day 10 times in these verses. It's very important to him. Let's read from, from verse 15. In those days, I saw people in, in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they are bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Israel had stopped going to church and had started to go to the shops. But they had promised, they had promised, just as they had promised to keep, upkeep the temple, they had also promised to observe the Sabbath. In Nehemiah 10, again, they say, when our neighbours come bringing merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. And every seventh year we will forego working on the land and will cancel all the debts. But now they have neglected God's word. And they've been influenced by the world. Foreign nations are wanting to come and, and deal with them and the pressure is there to trade and so they give in. The size of their wallets has outgrown the desire for the presence of the Lord. Their priorities have shifted. And whenever someone asks you, how much time do you give to the Lord in prayer and Bible reading, which makes us shuffle around in our seats. Another thing that makes us uncomfortable, the amount of time we spend with the Lord. It's another result, I think, perhaps of living in this kind of world that is fast moving, it's so much going on. It's very easy, again, for God to be pushed down the priority list. Nehemiah is talking specifically about the Sabbath, and of course, for us, the Sabbath is slightly different today. There will be Christians who will have different views on the Sabbath and on Sundays and how we should use that. There may be differences in this room. Whatever view we take, I'm sure we'd all agree that having time to rest physically is good and is essential. But also having time to rest in the Lord is essential too. Now, don't think there are any set rules in how we should spend Sundays in the New Testament. And I don't want to prescribe how we should use that day. But I do wonder if we don't make the most of Sundays as we could. I wonder how laws changing to do with Sunday trading have affected how we spend Sundays. I wonder whether we miss out on the opportunity to both yet rest physically but also have time 
with the Lord and time with his people. Often there can be an attitude where we say we'll go to church for an hour on Sunday morning, but then the rest of the day is spent however we would like to spend it. And I know that there are certain responsibilities with work and with family that means that some Sundays are taken up with those things and, and that's how it is. But sometimes we can do things on a Sunday that are of our own choice and we've neglected time with the Lord and with his people. Having time with the Lord, of course, is not just about Sundays and I don't want to make a big thing about Sundays, but, it, but I do want to make a big thing about spending time with the Lord. Where is time with him in our priority list of our life? If God is squeezed out of our Sundays, then does he appear at all from Monday to Saturday? Well, for Nehemiah, the Sabbath was a, a big deal. And he rebukes the nobles for desecrating the Sabbath day, but then he also reminds them of how this had been a problem in the past. Verse 18. He says, didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. One of the reasons Israel went into exile was because they were abusing the Sabbath. 70 years they were there to make up for all the missed Sabbaths that they'd neglected. Nehemiah seeks to put things right. He puts men on guard. He watches the, the gates, keeps them closed. Threatens people with arrest if they want to come into the, into the city. Now, I don't suggest that we send out the elders to all the houses of people who haven't been to church on Sunday. But maybe there's something in this for us of how do we spend that day or how do we spend our restful time? Do we give God priority in our lives. If you were in church on last Sunday morning, we were in Joshua 5, and Dan was showing us that even the Israelites took that time to stop and pause. Amidst all the hustle and the bustle and life, and they're about to conquer the land, they stopped and they paused. And they gave God time. They remembered God's word. So they didn't neglect it. Third, the third area where Israel neglects God's word and is influenced by the world is in their relationships. And particularly, Nehemiah speaks about marriage. Down to verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of the other peoples and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. For Israel, their scriptures, their law, was in the language of Hebrew. Their worship was conducted in Hebrew. They were identified as Hebrew people. And we all know that language is such a massive part of culture and life, and if you don't speak the language, you feel like an outsider. You can't fit in, you don't understand. I know what that's like from living abroad. Life and culture, relationships, customs, communication, they're all highly influenced by being able to communicate, know the language. 
Well, Nehemiah finds on his return to Jerusalem that a certain region, there have been men there who had married women from other nations, and they'd raised their kids with their wives, wives who didn't only not speak the language, but who didn't worship their God. Of course, like in most cultures, mothers have a huge influence on the upbringing of children. So if there is no Hebrew, then there's no real teaching of what is right. There's no access to worship. So children are growing up without knowing anything about the Lord. And we get to see how serious this is for Nehemiah. If you look at verse 25, he rebukes them, called curses down on them. He says, I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. And then he tells them how in the past with Solomon, all of that had led to the downfall of Israel. Nehemiah is really frustrated, isn't he? Pulling out people's hair. He's mad. I think there is such a thing as an unhealthy friendship with non-Christians. Relationships where we know that there's a real powerful influence from them. Influences our thoughts, our words, our behavior often. And we need to be careful. Too much time surrounded by gossip and work rubs off on us. That desire to want to impress our friends and do what they do sometimes leads us to doing things and saying things that later we regret. And we've got to be wise and careful with the friendships that we have. Of course, non-Christians are not bad people. And we are allowed to have friendships with non-Christians, of course. What about the most important human relationship, that of marriage? We've seen already that for Israel, marrying people who were not of their nation, who didn't worship their God, was disastrous for Israel. And so, too, I think for us as Christians, there are many, many testimonies of how Christians marrying non-Christians has brought disaster. John tells us in his first letter and warns us that not to love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Paul tells us that if we marry, we must marry in the Lord, which means to marry someone, I don't think just as a Christian, but someone who is godly and who loves the Lord Jesus and who wants to serve him. Often Christians marrying Christians can be a disaster if it's not right. Of course, that, again, it doesn't mean that we can never have friends who are not Christians. And I know that sometimes there are situations where one person in the marriage is, is, married, is a Christian and one person is not a Christian, and, and that is difficult, that it's unique, and we must pray for unsafe spouses. The Bible warns us time and time again, if we are not married and we are seeking to marry, that we must marry in the Lord. 
And he tells us about one reason, and one reason is because of the influence it has on children. I've heard of unbelieving spouses being very happy for their Christian spouse to take their children to church and are very sympathetic with what they believe. But then children can grow up being a little confused. They have conflicting worldviews being taught in the home. What is right? What is wrong? That's in all of our relationships, both in marriage and other relationships that we have. Make sure that we have our priorities right. Children will not only be influenced by families, but they will be influenced in school with their friends. And as parents, we need to be ready to be able to respond biblically. As they are influenced by the world, how will we respond with the word? Now, so far in this sermon, gosh, I've spoken for half an hour, and it's been pretty heavy, full of rebuke. And in one sense, that has been my intention, because that's how Nehemiah gives it to us. But of course, we can't leave it there. And Nehemiah doesn't leave it there either, I don't think. Nehemiah speaks through his prayer of this need for the mercy of God. He speaks of repentance and purification. He talks about getting things right, putting things right in the lives of these Israelites. You might notice a few times through the passage, Nehemiah talks about purifying the people, purifying the situations. Verse 9, he says, I gave orders to purify the rooms that Tobiah had been in. Verse 22, he says, Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates. And in verse 29, again, he says about purifying the priests and the Levites of everything that is foreign. Even though Israel had sinned and they'd neglected God's word and they were being influenced by the world and it was leading to all sorts of chaos, there was purification available. There was forgiveness. And at, each, at, the, end, at the end of each of those little sections that Nehemiah talks about, he prays. Do you notice verse 14? Remember me for this, my God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And verse 22, after purifying those who have abused the Sabbath, he says, remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And at the very end, after rebuking those who have married foreign women, he says, remember them, my God, because they defile the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And he ends by saying, remember me with favor, my God. Nehemiah, on the one hand, has worked so hard, hasn't he, to bring the people back to the land, to set up the walls, to rededicate the people. They are now his people once again. And with Ezra reading the law, he's re-established the worship and, and all is well. So he's precious about all that is, is done and he's anxious that it doesn't all fall apart. His reaction to sin has been extreme. He's wanted to pull out people's hair. He knows from Israel history that the exile happened because they did all these things. And he wants God to notice and to keep it safe. 
But on the other hand, he's asking God to remember, not to reward him as if he's better than anyone else, but to remember meaning to act. To remember in the Old Testament means to act, to respond. And he wants God to act in mercy. He doesn't want God to judge. He doesn't want them to go back into exile. He wants God to forgive them. So Nehemiah offers this. He ultimately comes to God because God is the only one who can help. Nehemiah has done all he can. He is not the Messiah. He cannot ultimately save them from their sins. They need one still to come. And the book of Nehemiah finishes and we read it and we think, yes, they still need this one who is to come. They still need Jesus. And we can give thanks, living post-Jesus, we can say that yes, he came and there is Jesus and he lived a perfect life. He lived the life that no Israelite could live. But more than that, through his death and resurrection, he makes a way that we can be purified, that we can be completely forgiven, that we can be sharing ultimate mercy forever and ever. And so as we close, friends, a Christian is one who has trusted in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They have been washed clean, as it were, of their sins. But a Christian is not someone who is perfect. None of us are perfect. We are a working progress. But until the last day when we will be perfect, we live as part of God's church. As he builds his church, we are there with him. Jesus is like Nehemiah who comes and convicts us of sin that leads us to repentance. As we hear God's word, we respond. I don't know where you stand in terms of all of these things. We've talked about how we use our money, how we use our time, how we conduct our relationships. But if we have our priorities mixed up in these areas, then Nehemiah shows us that there is forgiveness, that there is purification, there is mercy. Nehemiah shows us that despite our sin, Jesus will keep building his church. And he wants to use us. And so as we hear God's word tonight, may we respond in repentance. May we be thankful that there is forgiveness. And may we rededicate our lives in wanting to serve the Lord in how we use our money, to give him our time, and to live in godly relationships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this sermon series in Nehemiah. We thank you for how throughout the book we have seen uh, you doing such great work amongst your people. How you have forgiven them, how you've brought them back to their land. How you have been so willing to recommit to them in covenant. How they have repented and have given their lives back to you. And yet we also thank you that despite their sin, despite the fact that they keep breaking their, their, their own promises, 
that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you did ultimately send Jesus and that he, for the Israelites and for us, is our hope. He is the one in whom we can find true forgiveness. It is in Jesus that we are completely purified and made right before you. And so we thank you for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.